Our Father, we're living in, in times of, uh, quite frankly, uh, a lot of fear. There's a lot to be afraid of. There is... When, when, a, when a society, when a culture, when a nation leaves your truth, chaos and anarchy result. In the book of Judges, they left your truth, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when that occurs, well, things get bad, and there's plenty to fear. But you said, fear not, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. Time and time and time again throughout the scripture, you tell us to fear not. Fear not, fear not. And the reason you keep telling us so often to fear not is that there is always something to fear. There is always something that could bring harm. There is always something that could, uh, that, that, that is a potential threat. There is something that could do great damage to us, to those we love. It can come from a thousand different places. But we live in a world that is full of evil. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. But he went on to say, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. As we read the scripture, the more we read it, the more we digest it, the more it sinks in, the more we put it into our hearts and mind, our level of fear goes down. The more we know you, and the more we have a fear of you, in, in terms of awe, absolute awe of who you are. When our minds are stayed on thee, you keep us in perfect peace. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the more we are in awe of you and your greatness and your power, and your ability to even take evil, which does happen, and intrudes into our lives, but not without your permission. You're the God who even brings good out of evil. Our times are in your hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. It is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. Uh, our lives are in your hands. No one dies early. Maybe from our perspective, 
because we have expectations about how long life should go. But your plan has never been thwarted for any individual. Just that fact alone enables us to fight off fear. Thank you for truth. Thank you for who you are, that you're the God who not only never lies, you are the God who can't lie. And you are the God of all power. And you are the God of all wisdom. And because you are a God who is not only powerful and wise, but you are a God who is good, we can entrust our lives into your care. And not live in fear, but live in peace. Because of what Jesus has done. And because when our life is over here, in this world, that next breath, we're in the eternal world. That's all because of what Christ has done. Thank you for his sinless life. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the fact that he took our sins upon him and died in our place. And that the offer of the gospel is simply that if we trust in him, our sins can be forgiven. That's, that's the news that expunges all fear. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So tonight, our, our, uh, our subject is anchored in trusting God. Anchored in trusting God. Our passage is Proverbs 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Oftentimes, we'll read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but not go to 7. But we'll get all three tonight. Proverbs 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Anchored in trusting God. Our, our, we started off this, this series uh, talking about the fact that a Christian man's responsibility is to anchor his family in Christ. Therefore, that Christian man must be anchored in Christ. And there are different aspects to being anchored in Christ. When crisis hits a family or a community, 
Someone needs to be stable. Someone needs to be steady. Someone needs to have their wits about them. In, in other words, when, when, when crisis or calamity or catastrophe hit, the normal natural tendency is to panic. But a man who is anchored in Christ doesn't need to panic. Not if he's thinking straight. Not if he's thinking correctly because he's anchored in God, he's anchored in the Scriptures, he's anchored in Christ, he's anchored in the character of God, the power of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. A, a, a man who is anchored in God has, um, has gravitas. He's got some weight to him. He, he's not flighty. He's not... He's got some substance holding him. And what's... He's anchored. He's rooted Flip over to Psalm 1 before I delve into Proverbs 3. I don't know why this happens to me so often, but I just roll with it because Scripture interprets Scripture. Psalm 1, this is how the 150 Psalms start off. This is a summary, Psalm 1. There's a contrast between the man who knows the Lord, and the man who doesn't. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Those who don't know the Lord don't take his counsel. They don't read his book. Before we came to know the Lord, we really didn't read his book. We weren't interested in his counsel or his wisdom. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, doesn't mean that you don't have relationships, but what the idea here is, is, is influence. Your primary influence does not come from those who are not connected to the Lord. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates, he ponders day and night. Doesn't mean that's all you think about. You got a job, you got a life. But on the back burner, on simmer, is the Word of God. Because you're familiar with it, and because you go to a church that teaches the Word of God, and you come to a men's Bible study, and you have your personal time in the Scripture. So you got Scripture simmering on the back burner. It. Uh, I mean, faxes. Does anybody have fax machines anymore? I remember that was a big deal. And I remember when I got a dedicated fax line. Boy, that was big. I mean, I was a tech guru. No more having to answer the phone and push a button. I mean, it just, it was dead. See, that's... On a back burner in your brain as you're going through life and you're doing all your stuff and your responsibilities, you got a dedicated fax line with Scripture that you've hidden your heart. 
His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now watch this. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. He has God's favor. Um, that taproot of your life goes down, 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 deep into the Word of God. Uh, Brian and I have both been to a little village in England called Bibbury. And in that little village, which one of the English sages said is the most picturesque village in all of England, you can still walk along that Cone River, C-O-L-N, spring-fed river. You can see the spring, and then it winds its way through that little village in the Cotswolds. And then it works its way around that uh, Norman church that you can still walk into. It was built in about 1100, 1200. And then you go around that castle, and there are these the biggest oak trees I've ever seen in my life. Massive, massive oak trees. Majestic, beautiful. Been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I remember the first time Mary and I were, were just there and walking around and came around the corner around that church and we're walking by that spring-fed river and then 100, 200 yards in front of us are these massive English oak trees right next to that spring-fed river. And that's what came to my mind. Do you know how many storms those oaks have withstood? Why? When other oaks went down? Because they're anchored. They go down deep. Yeah. That's the concept. Let's go back to Proverbs 3. Because you see... What happens when you're anchored in God's Word is that you get more and more anchored in, in your proclivity to trust God in the worst of circumstances. Now, you don't get this in a Christian microwave. This, this doesn't come quick, and it doesn't come easy. This comes with years of walking with the Lord. Uh, it's a slow growth in the Christian life. We're going to take apart this very familiar passage in Proverbs 3. But let me kind of give you an outline tonight of where I'm going. Three, three main points, okay? First main point is this. First main point there are two foundational truths about trusting God. Two foundational truths about trusting God. We'll come back to that. Second main point. Two common idols that keep us from trusting God. Two common idols that keep us from trusting God. Number three, one reliable solution 
that enables me to trust God. So I'll go over them again. Two introductory statements, right, two foundational truths about trusting God. That's number one. Two foundational truths about trusting God. Number two, two common idols that keep us from trusting God. Number three, one reliable solution that enables us to trust God. So let's go to the first point. Let me give you the two foundational truths about trusting God. The first one is this. The Christian life is a journey of learning to trust God. It's a journey. It takes time. You, you, uh, you can't take the course on trusting God online. You can't take this course in learning to trust God in summer school. It's a lifelong course. It takes years. And, and let's say this. Your life, whatever stage, whatever chapter of life that you find yourself in, there will always be something where you will have to trust God. We're never exempt from trusting God. One way to put it is that in your, God blesses us, he's good to us, but you've noticed that we have these afflictions and we have these trials and we have these tribulations. We're told about them all the way through scripture. And when those come, we would like God to take them away, but oftentimes he leaves them there for a while because he has a purpose in bringing them into our lives. We've talked about this many times. Uh, they, they develop us. Uh, James 1, count it joy. Think it as joy. Consider it as joy. doesn't say feel it as joy when you enter, when you encounter various trials. doesn't mean you jump up and down because you found out that, yes, you do have cancer. That God is not weird. Christians can be weird, but God's not weird. Oh, yeah, but it says count it as joy. Yeah, you use your mind to count. Consider it. You use your mind. Uh, you don't feel it as, you don't experience it as joy. When, when, when you get hit with some kind of affliction, it kind of, it'll shake you, it'll knock you down, and you get your feet under you, and then what happens, you got you to gotta, you gotta get your focus and you're kind of stunned and shocked and you never saw this coming, but you got to get your focus and you got to get your lenses and look at this thing through the Word of God. So you take a step back, this thing you don't like and you don't want, and what you do is you, you think it is joy when you encounter a trial. Watch this, knowing, knowing. There's your mind again. Knowing that the testing of your faith well, my faith is being tested here. Man, I don't want this. This is the last thing I, this, with everything else that's going on right now, yeah, and the Lord knows that. Um, in Psalm 42, the psalmist says, all your waves are rolled over me. Every wave you've got, it seems like you're hitting me with it. 
And there are seasons where it just seems like you get slammed, 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 slammed. Now, what's going on here? You got to take a step back. Think it is joy when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, the Christian life is not a short race. It is a race, but it's a long race. This long race that we're on called the Christian life, whatever phase, whatever chapter of life you're in, there will always be something. Every guy in this room has something in your life right now that you are having to trust God to come through for you, and if you don't, the consequences are devastating. And you can't get control over it. You've got, you know, God's been good and faithful here and blessed you here and here. But if he doesn't come through here, you're in big trouble. And so we have to trust him. But what happens is the more of those experiences we come through, and we've, if you've walked with Christ for a while, you've been through things, and then when, when those things came into your life, this thought crossed your mind. There's no way I'm going to get through this. And then what happened? Well, he got you through. And there was no possible way to get through. Even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23, what is that, four? Even though I walk through. It doesn't say even though I avoid. It doesn't say even though I tunnel under or fly over. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art what? With me. He's right there with us. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And, and see, after you go through a number of those and you get some miles on your tires, the next time you encounter one and you're kind of bamboozled and you're flummoxed and you're thinking, what is going on? And as I did... Monday night, as I was walking through my garage, I just stopped. I said, Lord, I don't get this. I don't get this. In fact, I don't even know how to pray about this. But I trust you. I trust you. Did I get an immediate answer? No. Has anything changed since Monday? Nothing. But he's there, and he's in charge, and he's faithful. And I can remember 35 years ago a similar circumstance that came along in my life and shook me to the core. Absolutely earthquaked me. But you see, three decades later, when you have time after time seen the faithfulness of God, that kind of helps you 
when you don't see any solution, but you see you know him, and you know his character, and you know his promises. So the Christian life is a journey of learning to trust God. It's, it's, the Christian life is a race. It's not a short race. It's not a sprint. It's a long race. It's a marathon. And once again, every guy in this room, you've got something in your life right now where you are having to trust God. And when God delivers you in this area, there'll be something else that'll come along, and once again, you'll need to trust him because this is the Christian life. Without faith, this is Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is, watch this, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The hall of fame in God's word is Hebrews 11, and those in the hall of fame are in there because they walk by faith, trusting in God when they couldn't see a way out, when all their resources were cut off, where there was no escape, where there was no possible way. <laughs> and he does it, and he gets us through. But again, you don't learn that in the first six months of the Christian life. Second, uh, second foundational truth about trusting God. First one is the Christian life is a journey of learning to trust God. The second one is an idol is anything that we trust in apart from God. Let me say that again. An idol is anything that we trust in apart from God. So throughout the scriptures... God comes down hard on idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. And different cultures, and, you know, they did in the Old Testament. They would make these gods. These gods, they would make these forms of, of, of animals or bulls or cows or snakes or whatever, and cultures still do that. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have tongues, but they can't taste, God says. Why would you turn from the living God to an idol? And you say, I don't have any idols like that. Well, we may not worship those kinds of idols, but we have idols. An idol is anything that we trust in apart from God. Now, let's get to our second main point. Uh, it's possible you can drive your idol. You can lease it with not much down <laughs> and look good. Uh, you can change the diaper of your idol. What's better is if you can hire someone to change the diaper of your idol. <laughs> if you're really doing well. But that's really not that smart. First of all, you don't make kids into your idol. And secondly, if you're a dad, it's good for you to change their diapers. It turns you into a servant. 
Those little kids are cute, but they have no interest in serving you. So somebody's going to have to grow up. I remember changing one of my boy's diapers. He, he couldn't have been eight months old. I'm changing his diaper. He looked at me and peed right in my face. <laughs> I'm convinced he knew what he was doing. <laughs> He's a little sinner. I'm a big sinner. But someone's got to be a servant. Let's go to Roman numeral two. Let me lay out two common idols that keep us from trusting God. There are a lot of idols, but these are, these are very common idols that keep us from trusting God. Number one, we tend to trust in ourselves. Let's look at a couple passages. Second Corinthians chapter 1. We tend to trust in ourselves, which really, when you think about it, is kind of stupid. Because anything, God made us, God put us together, God fashioned us. Um, Psalm 139, you can read that, beginning with verse 13, how God forms us and fashions us and shapes us in the womb, puts us together. So, um, you know, you go through school, and at a certain point, you take these, uh, these, these inventories, or you take aptitude tests. Oh, you have an aptitude for this, but you don't have an aptitude for that. You have this strength, but you don't have that. Da, 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 da. So everyone has some strengths. It, nobody has all the gifts. Nobody has all the strengths, but you've got some strengths, and maybe you'll have some success because of those strengths. Um, So some, some ball players, some wide receiver catches, catches that pass in the end zone. Actually, he didn't catch it. It lodged in his face mask. But he starts strutting around doing this. That's stupid. He dropped the previous 10. This one lodged in his face mask, and he's strutting around like he's whatever he thinks he is. If he caught it in his hands, you know why he caught it? Because God gave him incredible hand-eye coordination that most people don't have. That's why he caught that ball. If he was able to run that pattern and juke that defensive back and get away from him and get a step, that's because God gave him a quickness and speed that most people don't have. But it's all a gift. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? Are you good at math? Can you do those computations in your head? It's a gift. It's a gift. Are you good with people? Can you read people like a book? Can you read their heart? That's a gift. Whatever your strengths are that God has given you, and he has given you some it's from him. Give him glory. Give him glory for it. Uh, where are we going? Second Corinthians. We're going to Second Corinthians one. 
which is really the most, uh, of all Paul's letters, he's the most transparent. He opens up his life, what's going on inside him, more than any other letter in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, he says this, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. This is a big deal. Note how he describes it. That we were burdened excessively. They're burdens, you know, but this was excessive. This was heavy. This was crushing. We were burdened excessively, watch this, beyond our strength. Uh, couldn't take it anymore. Reached the end of the line. Out of gas. Not running on fumes, he's past fumes. Absolutely fatigued, exhausted. Uh, this, whatever this burden is, it's crushing him. It is debilitating him so that, look at the next line, we despaired even of life itself. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. Things got so rough and things got so hard and things got so difficult that, quite frankly, he wished that he could just check out. He was done. I remember when I read that in the midst of that depression I went through in my early 30s, I came across that verse. I, I'm sure I read it before, but it came off that page because, you see, that's how I was feeling on that day. I, I thought I was finished. I thought I was done. I thought I had made some dumb decisions and dumb moves, and I thought there was, I, I really thought I had ruined my life, and it was beyond fixing. I mean, I knew Jesus. I knew he was my savior. I knew that. I, I knew somehow he'd, but I'd screwed up, kind of beyond repair. And I honestly wished that I could die. Why does that happen to Christians? Why does that happen to us? Well, one of the reasons it happens, and I thank God for this text, is that Paul just goes on and tells us sometimes why it happens. Let's pick it up in eight again. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Watch this. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us he was out of gas. This was his emotions. But you see, he had to take a step back. He's being tested. And the more you're tested, the more endurance you get. Why, why did God bring this into his life? So that he would not trust in himself. Our tendency is to trust in ourselves. Oh, I, I went to this university, or yeah, I know these guys, or I, you know, I got this network, or I, I, I'm LinkedIn, or I'm, you know, Whatever you are. Here's my resume. Here's this. Here's that. Let's go to Proverbs 26, 12. 26:12. So what 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 idol is it we're talking about? Well, we tend to trust in ourselves. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. 
If you think you've got it together, you're in big trouble. Yeah, you're, you're in deep trouble. That would fit along with uh, Romans 12. Let's flip over there. And this can happen to us, even as believers in Christ, we get, we get kind of full of ourselves. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get 12.1 as well. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, get all in with Jesus. Give him everything you got. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allowed it to each a measure of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The, the, way that we be, uh, the way that we develop sound judgment and sound thinking is through Scripture. Back to Psalm 1. But he met in, in your, uh, how does that go? He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. And he meditates on the Word of God. You see, the more I'm in the Word of God, the more accurate perspective I have on life and on my life. The closer I get to God through his word, the more humility I will have. I won't be puffed up. I won't be full of myself. When people, <laughs> when God would appear, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they flew, with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah said, yeah, and I'm really something. <laughs> that sucker fell on his face because he thought he was going to die. You get in the presence of God, and you're just thankful you're breathing because you're a human. Take off your shoes, Moses. You're standing on what? Holy ground. The more I'm in the Word, and the more the Word is in me, that moderates me and my view of myself. That helps me not to trust in myself. It helps me not to rely on my perspective and my judgment. But you see, you don't learn this overnight. That's why we've all made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And God's gracious to us, isn't he? He brings us along. We screw up. We sin. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't want us proud men. He doesn't want us arrogant. And if we're not teachable, and if we don't learn these lessons, you know what he'll do? He'll discipline us, and he will humble us. And he can very easily and very quickly get you in a fetal position where you know that all you have is him. And really, when you get down to it, all you have is him. That's it. Um, second common idol. As men, we tend to trust in our own plans. We tend to trust in our own plans. Uh, aren't we supposed to make plans? Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to be passive. You don't just sit on your tail all day and, you know, eat bluebell ice cream sandwiches and figure it's all going to roll in. It doesn't work like that. You got to get out there. And you got to have a plan, and you got to think through as a young man, what do I want to do with my life? Well, if I want to be there at 40, well then, gosh, I'm going to have to get some credentials. I'm probably going to have to go to school. Or you know what? I want to be an electrician. I want to have 10 guys working for me. All right, you're probably have to go to, go to, you're going to have to go to trade school. You don't have to go to college. But you're going to have to do something to get the credentials, to learn a craft, a trade. You're going to have to graduate from high school. And then if you want this, you might have to go to college. My experience with college is about 90% of it was worthless propaganda. But there, I had a couple of profs that were, I, I had two that I remember that were pretty darn good, and I learned a ton from them. The rest of it, yeah. You read good books. You get equipped. You get a credential. Oh, I got to have this credential to get there. Get it. You got to make a plan. Okay, but let's go to James. But you see, there are two ways to make your plans. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, I mentioned I was talking to a young man, and I made a suggestion to, uh, to him that one thing I learned at this stage of my life is that when I, 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 do I make plans? Yeah. I don't make them in ink. Make them in pencil. Because you're going to be erasing those suckers. Nothing wrong with a plan. Look at James 4. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet yeah, you do not, you don't know what life will be like tomorrow. Uh, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Uh, great baseball pitcher, had a great career, great teammate, extraordinarily gifted. From what I read, hardworking, disciplined, prepared, won the Cy Young Award twice, um, had great uh, financial provision because of his career in life, bought a plane, which his wife didn't want him to buy, and, uh, and he died yesterday. That wasn't the plan when he bought that plane. Come now, you say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business, make a profit. 
Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, watch this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And see, that's our tendency. We've all done it, and it's still our propensity is to, um, is to trust in our own plans. And, and here's what happens in the Christian life. What will happen is you'll come to know the Lord and what a great God, what a great Savior. He's got a plan for our lives and he's going to take us from immaturity to maturity. You're going to have an experience and you're going to have more than one experience like this where you're going to have a plan and it looks like a good plan and you're praying about the plan and you're even seeking counsel on the plan and and then what happens is that plan gets absolutely devastated and uh, demolished. And you really thought that it's what the Lord wanted for you. It, it, it appeared that he was leading you. And, and then, yeah, I mean, and then it just goes down in flames and everything you thought was going to happen is destroyed. When plans, our plans are thwarted, we grieve, and sometimes, depending on the severity of the situation, if it's really a devastating loss, in our heart of hearts, we think God has abandoned us. You've experienced that, and I've experienced it. I always forget that clock, but it's there. I, I've said this before in here. I remember sitting on the front porch with Mary and my kids are playing in the front yard. I mean, I'm following the Lord. I think I'm doing what he wants me to do. And I'm in ministry. The whole thing blew up in my face. And I remember sitting there saying, why did you move me halfway across the country? I don't get this. This makes absolutely no sense. It made no sense. I was stunned. I was shocked. Now I look back. He had a better plan. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. He had something so far superior to what I thought he was going to do there. It still stuns me and shocks me what he did. The, I've said this many times because it's worth saying many times. The greatest things God has ever done for me in my life have come out of the greatest disappointments in my life. 
because as Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. <laughs> when your plans die and your dreams die and you think you're finished and it's over and there's no recovery and there's no way of getting your life back, you have Jesus. You're good. You're good. If you're all in and you'll trust him and you'll do it his way, you're good. Even if you die, you're good. And you are going to die. Just wanted to give you a word of encouragement. <laughs> You're going to die, I'm going to die. But what did Paul say? It's far better. So what does that mean? That last breath I take, and you got X amount of breaths left, and so do I. Hebrews 9. It's appointed for a man wants to die, and then comes judgment. That last breath is your best breath, because your next breath you're in the presence of Christ forever. Forever. But you can't die until your work is done. That's why you're here tonight. You haven't finished your work. The guys who have finished their work, they couldn't be here tonight. <laughs> they wouldn't want to be here tonight. It's far better. It is true, though, when our plans that we think are good plans and godly plans, and the Lord has even encouraged us in the plans, when they get devastated, um, listen, you're going to grieve, and if it's really, really severe and it's devastating loss, you're going to think God has abandoned you. Turn over, if you would, to Isaiah 49. Here's another thing I've said before many times. As you read Scripture, it becomes very clear that God works in three ways in our lives. Number one, he works sovereignly. He works in every detail of our lives, every detail he, he's at work in. He governs everything about the world and your life, everything. Even bad, even evil. He's the God who will take evil and turn it to good, Romans 8, 28. But God in your life will work sovereignly. Secondly, God will work strangely. Strangely. Thirdly, he will work slowly. Slowly. In Isaiah 49, verse 14, they think the Lord has forsaken them. They're exiled in a foreign land. Zion, which is Jerusalem, uh, the people of God, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. There'll be a time where you will feel that way. You'll feel abandoned. Uh, it's not fun. But you see what he's doing. He's weaning, when that happens, he's weaning us off of ourselves. And our self-desires, and our self-interest, and our self-satisfaction, and our self 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 he is weaning us off of ourselves and moving us to him, to trust in him. Uh, the Lord has forsaken me. 
and the Lord has forgotten me. That's how I felt that day on that front porch. That's how I felt. Now, here's the truth. Because you see, you can't live off your emotions how you feel. They're just emotions. Here's the truth. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Some women do forget. But I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I think the greatest devotional, and there's a lot of good ones, uh, ever done is Morning and Evening by C.H. Spurgeon. He's got a reading in the morning, and he's got a reading for the evening. This is the reading for November 7th that he wrote about 150 years ago, ballpark. It's all based on Isaiah 49, 16. Can, can I say something to you? Read the old dead guys <laughs> who walk with God. Who knew God? Read them. There's a depth. So here's what Spurgeon had to say about Isaiah 49, verse 16. I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Small print. No doubt part of the wonder that is concentrated in the word behold is on account of the contrast with the unbelieving lament of the preceding sentence. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. How amazed the divine mind, God, seems to be at this wicked unbelief. What can be more astounding than the unfounded doubts and fears of God's favored people? The Lord's loving words of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, how can I have forgotten you when I have engraved you on the palms of my hands? How dare you doubt my constant remembrance when the memorial is carved upon my own flesh? Oh, unbelief, what a strange marvel you are. We do not know what to wonder at most, the faithfulness of God or the unbelief of his people. He keeps his promise a thousand times, and yet the next trial makes us doubt him. He never fails. He is never a dry well. He is never as a setting sun, a passing meteor, or a melting vapor. And yet we are as continually troubled with anxieties, molested with suspicions, and disturbed with fears as if our God were a mirage in the desert. Behold is a word intended to stir our admiration. Here indeed we have a theme for marveling. Heaven and earth may well be astonished that rebels should, in, should obtain such a closeness to, their, to the heart of infinite love as to be written on the palms of his hands. I have engraved you. It does not say your name. The name is there, but that is not all. I have engraved you 
Consider the depth of this. I have engraved your person, your image, your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works. I have engraved you, everything about you, all that concerns you. I have put all of this together here. Will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when he has engraved you on his own palms? Now that's truth. Is it? That humbles me because I'm a wuss. <laughs> He's never been a dry well. I love that. Yeah, but, yeah, but Steve, it, 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 but you know, I mean, today I got a phone call, I got a dry well. You watch that well. Just watch it. Actually, turn your eyes on Jesus. He's the living water. He's got stuff for you you can't imagine. It's what he does. He's the Savior, and he just keeps on saving even in our disappointments, devastating disappointments, devastating losses that we think we'll never recover from. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I, I absolutely love, died in 1981, pastor of Westminster Chapel in uh, London. Uh, I, I, think, I think the greatest preacher expositor of the 20th century. Um, what was interesting about Lloyd-Jones he never intended to be a pastor. As a young man, he, uh, he wanted to be a physician, was admitted to uh, medical school at the age of 16 in London, graduated top of his class. He, he had such, he had such gifts that Lord Horder H-O-R-D-E-R, who was the physician to the queen and the physician to four prime ministers in his career, hand-selected young Martin Lloyd-Jones right out of med medical school to be his protege. And in his early 20s, Martin Lloyd-Jones would go with Lord Horder on his rounds and deal with the royal family and the extended members of the gentry and he saw all the wealth, he saw all of the, he saw, he saw it all. Everything they had, the wealth, the privilege, the power, he, he saw it all. And he saw the spiritual emptiness. He'd been raised in church, but he didn't know Christ. He heard the gospel and called on the name of the Lord Jesus. And as he would go into these wealthy, wealthy castles and He saw the emptiness, and God started tugging his heart that he needed to be a physician of the soul. He never saw that one coming. And he walked away from his medical career at the age of 27 and went to a little coal mining town in Wales and lived in obscurity for 10 years. And it was 
and it was covered in all the London newspapers. It was such a shock. And then 10, 11 years later, God brought him back to London. Lloyd-Jones said this, I am profoundly grateful that God did not grant me certain things I asked for and that he shut certain doors in my face. I bet you can say that too. I can say it. The great theologian Garth Brooks said it. <laughs> One of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Right? That girl in high school, you flipped over. I mean, life couldn't get any better. All you wanted to do was win her, marry her. And then 20 years later, you go back to your high school reunion with your wife. And you see that girl that had your heart, had your life, had your dreams, had your plans. And you say... Thank you, God, <laughs> for unanswered prayers. <sighs> All right, let's do this quick. Third point, I got six zeros facing me. Nothing new for me. What's the reliable solution to trusting God? Well, that's, let's go back to Proverbs 3, Okay. These principles are so fundamental, and the, and the thing is, we learn that, that verse early on in the Christian life. It's one of the first verses that you ever learn. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to thy own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways. He will make your path straight. Do not be wise. And then we tend to stop there, but you got to go on. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Uh, I love Ray Ortland. I've quoted from him before. He's a great Old Testament scholar, pastor in Nashville. His comments on, I, I got to read this to you, on trust in the Lord with all your heart. He says this. These are the most famous verses in Proverbs. What are they saying? They are saying that our confidence is not some personal, impersonal ethic, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Trust in the What? The Lord, trust in the Lord Jesus, who created life, who sustains life, who beat death, who has prepared a place for you, will come back to judge the living and the dead, and because of his death on your behalf, you will live forever and not go into judgment. Trust in the Lord. These verses are saying our confidence is not some impersonal ethic, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the kind of trust he deserves and demands is wholehearted trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. One of my seminary professors told me about his father crossing the Susquehanna River one winter's day. His dad did not know how thick the ice was. So he was crawling along on all fours, gingerly feeling his way forward, when he heard some racket and clatter coming up behind him. He looked back, and here came a wagon pulled by four, four horses. 
and the driver was whipping them along at a pretty good clip right across the frozen river. The guy was a local. He knew how thick the ice was. Too many Christians are like the man down on all fours, creeping along, way too cautious. Their trust in the Lord is half-hearted. Then along comes a wholehearted Christian, and he changes the tone for everyone around. When somebody trusts in the Lord with all their heart, it affects everybody around you. Doesn't it? There are people that have had that kind of influence on you. Oh, yeah. The Hebrew verb translated trust is cognate with the Arabic verb that means to throw oneself down on one's face, to lie down spread eagle in complete reliance. To make it as graphic as I can, it means to do a belly flop on God with all our sin and all our failure and all our fears. We stake everything on the gospel promises of God. If God fails us, we are damned. If God comes through, we are saved forever. Real trust is that blunt and daring and simple. A.W. Tozer nailed it when he said, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. Hebrews 11, those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I mean, he'll get you through. He'll get you through. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Your money, your relationships, your integrity, all your life is under the lordship of Christ. There are no secrets. You get all in with Jesus in every area. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your paths straight, even if they're crooked, even if it makes no sense. Do not be wise in your own eyes. We've already looked at that. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And when you do, deal with it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't defend it. Don't rationalize it. Don't excuse it. Don't blame it on somebody else. Just come clean with Jesus, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be cleansed. Why would you not want that? Okay. So, I've been waiting to use this story. I mean, I've been waiting for a long time. And it's going to take a few minutes, but I want you to check this out. Because why are you going to read this story, Steve? It comes from Ravi Zacharias. It's about a guy who was his translator when he preached in Vietnam before the communists took over. And, you know, all that happened. And he always wondered what happened to his translator. And one day, Ravi was in San Francisco. He gets a phone call, and it's this guy. And he didn't know he was alive. 
reason why I want to show you the story is that this guy implemented everything in Proverbs 3. He had to. I'll do it quick. After Vietnam fell, Hien was captured by the Viet Cong and imprisoned. They accused him of collaborating with the CIA since he had worked with missionaries. In prison, they worked him over, telling him again and again that he had been brainwashed by Westerners. They took away his Bible. They forbade him to speak English, the language he had loved, permitting him to use only Vietnamese or French. So this guy's incarcerated, and he's being interrogated, and he's being beaten, and they're attempting to brainwash him. There is no such thing as God, came the refrain from his captors, day after hellish day. The hour finally came when he and wondered, maybe they're right, maybe there is no such thing as God. He's overwhelmed, he's out of gas. He's fatigued, he's exhausted. He's lost his resources. Maybe they're right, maybe there is no such thing as God. Uh, he thought back to some of my sermons and the shared blessings we'd enjoyed. He wondered if perhaps I had been deluded too. That night he went to bed muttering to himself, I'm through with God. When I wake up in the morning, no more God and no more prayer. The new day dawned, and the commanding officer of the prison barked out the assignments for the day. He in was to clean the latrines. He cringed when he heard it. It was the ultimate form of indignity for the prisoners. The latrines were the absolute dregs of human filth, and he in spent the entire day in those inhospitable surroundings. His final task was to empty the trash cans, which were filled with soiled toilet paper. Didn't get any worse than this. All day long, he labored with reminders to himself, no God today, no God today. But as his work was coming to an end, something in the last trash can happened to catch his eye. It was a piece of paper with printed type. As he looked closer, he saw it was in English. Hungry to read this language again, he looked around to make sure nobody was watching. He hastily rinsed off the filth and tucked the paper into his pocket. That night, after everyone had fallen asleep, he carefully took out his flashlight and removed the still damp paper from his pocket. In the upper right-hand corner of the page were the words, Romans 8. In a state of shock, he then began reading Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What a coincidence. <laughs> he kept reading through Romans 8. What shall we say then in response to them? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who Christ, who's God, who, whom God has chosen? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine? And he goes on reading Romans 8. He begins to cry. Of all the scripture verses he had known, these were the ones he most needed to hear, and now they had come back to him. Lord, he said in his heart, you would not let me out of your reach for even one day. He turned over in his bed that night and prayed. The next morning when he saw the commanding officer, he and said, sir, would you mind if I clean the latrines again? The officer stared at him and was quite puzzled. Thinking Hin was being rather arrogant, he decided to assign him to the latrines indefinitely. You're going to clean them every day until I tell you to stop, he commanded. Hin did not know it in the beginning, but the officer himself had been tearing out those pages from the Bible and using them for toilet paper. Now each day, Hin 
rinsed them clean, hid them in his pocket, used them for his devotions at night. He ended up collecting numerous passages from the Book of Romans as well from other books of the Bible. After a while, he was let out of prison, and he started to plan his escape from the country. Some 50 others, including a high-powered political family, were involved in this escape attempt. He ends third after two failed previous attempts to escape. As the days passed, they worked to build a boat that they would be able to navigate on the high seas. A few days before they were about to leave, two Viet Cong confronted Hien. Are you planning to escape, they demanded? No. Tell us the truth. I am telling you the truth. Are you lying to us? No. As they left, Hien was filled with remorse. He felt he had no choice but to lie, especially since it would have put the others at risk. But now he prayed, Lord, I want you to be in control of my life again. See, he wasn't trusting God, so he lied. I want you to be in control of my life again. I am sorry that I lied. Here I am again, depending on my own wisdom. If you want me to tell those men the truth, send them back to me, and I promise I will tell the truth. They did come back, just hours before the group's departure. Only now there were four Viet Cong, and they grabbed him, pushing him against a wall. We know you're going to leave, they said. Yes, I am, he said, with 52 others. Are you going to put me back in prison? No, they said. We want to go with you. <laughs> he was speechless. He was speechless. At first he wondered if it was a trap, but it wasn't. And the four Viet Cong communists did go with them. Once they hit the high seas, the boat was rocked by a terrible storm. Brother Ravi, he and told me, if it weren't for those four men, we never would have made it. They had a tremendous ability to sail. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths, even across an ocean, with four communist officers who knew how to navigate. So, Father, we thank you. You can be trusted. You make a way where there is no way. For the man who is here... who's on the verge of despair. Encourage his heart as you encouraged him. You have engraved dust on the palms of your hands. That's all we need to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.